Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the exhibition Vision Extraordinaire commemorates the history of the Florida Institute of Technology. The founding fathers of this uh, university were employees in one way or another of the space program during the late 1950s. Florida Tech was founded in, officially in 1958. We'll discuss how Florida was represented at the 1934 World's Fair in Chicago. The uh, state government of Florida decided to fund a pavilion at the 1933-34 uh, Chicago World's Fair, which was formerly known as the Century of Progress International Exposition. And we'll revisit the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. From its modest origin 55 years ago as the Brevard Engineering College, the Florida Institute of Technology has grown into a major institution of higher learning. Originally dedicated to training NASA scientists for America's space program, the university now offers programs in oceanography, pollution control, medical research, psychology, liberal arts, aviation, and more. The athletics department includes baseball, softball, swimming, golf, soccer, and as of 2013, football. Florida Tech is consistently ranked among the best doctoral granting universities in the country. The exhibition Vision Extraordinaire commemorates the history of the Florida Institute of Technology and is on permanent display in the Evans Library. Dr. Sahir Wastawi is Dean of Libraries at Florida Tech. Although she's been at the university for a short time, she organized the Vision Extraordinaire exhibition with materials from the archive. I'm actually new to FIT. I just have been here for six months. And when I first came, one of the Emirati faculty, they do have um, a group. They call themselves the Silver Panthers. And very interested in documenting the history of the institution because they have been here from very much the very beginning or early times. So um, Dr. Harry Weber came and he was a provost of this institution at some point. And 
uh, told me about their effort in trying to record the history with Dr. Taylor and to do not only oral, oral history, but collect material uh, for the institution. Uh, so, and he told me that he also put some money in. So they, we, I had some money that they had given to the institution to be able to put together some permanent exhibition for that, to, to put something. They didn't really know what it was. But so uh, just they called it a welcome center um, that represents something of the history. But I thought it would be the best way of having it is to put it in a permanent exhibition that all visitors can come. The Vision Extraordinaire exhibition at Florida Tech's Evans Library begins with a model of a prehistoric animal discovered on the campus and rail spikes from the railroad that used to run through the property. It includes a variety of archival materials from the past 55 years, an interactive electronic timeline, and a graphic of the school's mascot, a panther, made up of hundreds of images of current Florida Tech students. Dr. Sahir Westawi. So we start building it. It's a small room, but we try to make it as attractive and as efficient as possible. We didn't want to put big cabinets or anything. We just had to build it in the walls and give it the right light and, and glass to give you the feeling that the space is bigger than it is. So, And we actually, to extend it a little, we use the, the wall outside as a beginning of the, um, arc, uh, the institution. So we went actually to like 10,000 years ago on the piece of land when a mammoth was discovered on this land. Um, so we went through that and we have been able to put it together, get some material from some of the departments, and this is how it came about. In 1949, President Harry Truman established a long-range proving ground for missiles at Cape Canaveral. By 1959, the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration was successfully launching lunar probes from Cape Canaveral, which led to the manned exploration of space in the 1960s and beyond. Between 1950 and 1960, the population of Brevard County exploded by more than 371 percent because of the developing space program. Dr. Robert Taylor is Associate Dean and Head of the School of Arts and Communication at Florida Tech. Dr. Taylor says that the history of the university reflects the history of the Space Coast. The founding fathers of this uh, university were employees in one way or another of the space program during the late 1950s. Florida Tech was founded in, officially in 1958 uh, when, of course, the, the, the Cape was really, really booming. And we were always tied very, very closely with the space program. In fact, at Florida Tech's first commencement, an honorary degree was given to the uh, Mercury astronaut Virgil Gus Grissom. Graduates of the Florida Institute of Technology include three NASA astronauts who participated in the shuttle program, Sunita Williams, Joan Higginbotham, and George Zamka. The first classes of the Brevard Engineering College were held in 1958 at O'Galley Junior High School. In 1961, BEC took over the campus of the failed Melbourne University, and by 1966, the school was known as the Florida Institute of Technology. Dr. Robert Taylor. Florida Tech's origins are, uh, are very interesting. There were plans for a University of, of Melbourne, but it, uh, frankly, was stillborn. And uh, our, our first president, uh, Dr. Jerry Cooper, went and entered into negotiations and uh, eventually uh, would acquire the infrastructure of the University of Melbourne, which would be the nucleus of what would be Brevard Engineering College and eventually Florida Tech. 
By 1960, the population of the school was about 500 students. Today, more than 9,000 students are enrolled at Florida Tech. The university's ties to the space program remain strong. Well, as Brevard County boomed, as the space program boomed in the glory days of Gemini and Apollo, so did Florida Tech.、Uh, ironically,、uh, when the space program uh, sort of uh, stalled a little after、uh, the Apollo moon landings,、uh, and Brevard County's economy had to adjust to a, to a new reality,、uh, Florida Tech. Would be a very important factor in retraining、uh, space center workers to、uh, find other things to do. So it was、uh, very helpful in helping Brevard County adjust to new economic realities, as as it is today. The electronic timeline that is part of the Vision Extraordinaire exhibition highlights the milestones we have been discussing and many more. It can be accessed online at timeline.fit.edu. The timeline shows that in 1970, Melbourne's first schoolhouse was preserved at Florida Tech. After seeing the Vision Extraordinaire exhibit at Evans Library, visitors can go to the botanical garden adjacent to the library to see the one-room schoolhouse. It is located in the、uh, university's botanical garden, right next to、uh, the Evans Library. Uh, and uh, I love personally to take students there, potential students, to show them、uh, the origins of education in Brevard County, and then what we like to think is some of the the cutting edge of education in Brevard County today. So it's it's, it's really neat、uh, neat bookends. Public radio station WFIT has been broadcasting this program since January 2009. Florida Frontiers now has 11 weekly broadcasts throughout the state, but WFIT was one of the original four stations to carry the program. As Dr. Taylor explains, WFIT was established in 1975. WFIT is hugely important to、uh, Florida Tech and and our out and our outreach.、Uh, just recently, Florida Tech.、Uh, Was able to、uh, acquire for WFIT a brand new broadcast facility,、uh, which is is absolutely fabulous. I would would encourage folks out there if you haven't been on the FIT campus for a while, drop by. You'll be amazed at some of the changes, particularly at WFIT's new home. The Vision Extraordinaire exhibition includes a variety of Florida Tech memorabilia, including a beanie from the 1960s, sports trophies, and examples of an archaic instrument unfamiliar to modern engineers: the slide rule. Dr. Sahir Westawi points out that the slide rule used to be part of the Florida Tech seal. One of the things that you see is the development of the seal, and you see in the old days where you used to use、um, a ruler, the sliding ruler for engineers. So you see this, and you see、uh, different types of shapes that can put in, and it, it gives you that the history even of engineering because this is the tools of the trade at that time, and then you see what we have now. So it is. You look at these. You look at them.、Um, there is a little ring that says Brevard Engineering Ca-、uh, College, and there's few of those that have left behind because the number of students were very small then. So being able to get one of these rings was not today is not an easy thing.、Um, this um, um, very interesting Ed Astra,、um, uh, which is、uh, yearbooks for students, and to look at the students of what they have done in the past and and. The way they look, the way I mean, the type of activities,、uh, the classes, all that,、uh, really, it's really 
priceless. We don't, we don't, many universities now don't really do a yearbooks for students. So these really are uh, are quite interesting to look at, and you can get to understand the institution better through its people. The Vision Extraordinaire exhibition commemorating the history of the Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne is on display in the Evans Library. The timeline portion of the exhibition is accessible online at timeline.fit.edu. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In addition to our weekly broadcast on WFIT Melbourne, you can hear Florida Frontiers on other great public radio stations, including WMFE Orlando, WUWF Pensacola, WJCT Jacksonville, WUFT Gainesville, and WQCS Fort Pierce. You can listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers anytime at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Brothers Robert B. Sherman and Richard M. Sherman wrote the song It's a Small World to accompany Walt Disney's Children of the World exhibition at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. That display lives on at the Magic Kingdom in Orlando. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society, and he says that 30 years earlier, at the World's Fair in Chicago, Florida was well represented. Yeah, that's right. The uh, state government of Florida decided to fund a pavilion at the 1933-34 Chicago World's Fair, which was formerly known as the Century of Progress International Exposition. And the goal of this exposition was to celebrate 100 years of uh, Chicago history but also look at world innovations and new technology, uh, new construction methods. And the state of Florida wanted to uh, promote tourism, but also promote uh, northerners to move down to the state. Um, So as a result, they designed this elaborate uh, Florida pavilion to highlight um, some of the more interesting aspects of of life, uh, climate, and new technologies in Florida. Now, in the Library of Florida History Archive, there's a a collection of photographs of the Florida Pavilion at the World's Fair. 
Yeah, that's right. We've got this great photo album of about 36 original black and white, uh, large format, 8 by 10 photographs um, that depict this Florida pavilion. And many of the photographs show large crowds walking through the elaborate gardens. And the gardens displayed, of course, indigenous plants or a lot of palm trees, uh, native Florida wildflowers, um, but also these statues of... Um, uh, of different Florida figures. Inside the pavilion, we have some photographs of a, a panoramic view of, of uh, these really beautifully done uh, paintings of different Florida history scenes. We have conquistadors, uh, looks like meeting with, with Native Americans, and they're very large uh, uh, large pictures. We're not sure who the artist was, um, but it looked like it was really quite a quite an operation. It took quite a bit of time to, uh, to develop and plan this exposition and then ship everything up to Chicago. Um, but uh, in most of the photographs, we see uh, we see a large crowd. There are also some uh, tour uh, guides who are guiding people through through the gardens and through the uh, uh, the Expo uh, um, Pavilion Center. As as part of the Florida presence at the World's Fair, there was a actually a new building that was constructed adjacent to the pavilion. That's right. And looking at it now, it doesn't look like much. It sort of looks like an old uh, an old house. But it was actually uh, what was called the. Um, the Florida Tropical House, and it was designed by a now famous Florida Miami architect by the name of Robert Law Weed, who was famous in what we call the modernist style of architecture. And he designed this Florida Tropical House, uh, again, to highlight some of the new and emerging uh, construction methods that were being used in uh, uh, newer home constructions for this, this modernist style in South Florida. Uh, and what he tried to do was integrate uh, not only new construction methods that were uh, designed for uh, specifically for Florida homes, but also integrate um, a lot of material that would have been uh, developed and manufactured in Florida, including Florida travertine, uh, clay that was found in Florida for the roof. Uh, he also found... Uh, uh, limestone that, of course, is, is natural to Florida, and some aggregate materials to uh, develop this new material called Portland cement, which is now uh, very common and, and used throughout most homes uh, in Florida. But the idea was to create this large kind of open floor plan, lots of windows, because we have to remember this is, uh, again, before the advent of, of air conditioning. Um, so they had to keep that in mind when designing these homes. And they built this entire structure uh, up in, in Chicago. What's fascinating about this particular structure is that in 1930, Five, uh, when the World's Fair was being dismantled, they were taking all of these uh, all these pavilions down. A uh, a developer decided to buy some of the uh, some of these interesting new uh, these new homes, including the Florida Tropical House. So the entire house was disassembled and then moved to uh, what's now called the Homes of Tomorrow uh, uh, exhibit, which is it's it's now actually protected as a as a historic site in Beverly Shores, Indiana, on the shores of Lake Michigan. So the Florida House still exists today. It's currently being renovated. So if you're ever driving through uh, through Beverly Shores, Indiana, you can visit uh, visit this Florida Tropical House. Well, great. Well, I understand that July 20th was Florida Day at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. That's right. And as I said earlier, the whole idea of this project was to try and attract uh, visitors to Florida and to promote Florida. It was really a, a, a great way to booster tourism in Florida. So the governor at the time, Dave Schultz, uh, traveled to the exhibit. Uh, he actually visited a few times, but he decided to come in, in July of, uh, of 1933, and the fair then decided to designate the uh, uh, designate July 20th as Florida Day, um, and and many people probably don't remember it now. We don't really celebrate it now, but I think we should bring it back. We'll make July 20th uh, Florida Day. All right, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers. 1920 was a difficult year for race relations in Florida. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, tensions came to a head with the Ocoee Massacre. There was a campaign throughout Florida to register blacks to vote, to get them involved in elections, which was, was quite horrifying, I think, to the Jim Crow South and to Jim Crow Florida. And so there there is a worry there that perhaps blacks are getting a little out of their place politically as well as economically. That was Dr. Claire Strom, Repetti Tronzo Professor of History at Rollins College. She was speaking to us about the 1920 presidential election in Florida. This was an important election in the Sunshine State. Dr. Strom tells us why this election was so important. I think that there was a great sense in 1920 of change. World War I had ended, 1919 had not been a good year for anyone really, but there had been African Americans in the military um, during the war, although in limited numbers. Women had got the right to vote in 1920, this is the first election they can vote in. So I think that there was a sense among sectors of the population that perhaps they could effect change, perhaps they could make a difference. And the Republican Party, which had so long been not present in the South, was putting money into voter uh, registration drives, into trying to get African Americans signed up to vote. So I think there was a sense that perhaps this this was an election when change could be effected. Throughout Central Florida, this specific election will always be tied to the Ocoee Riot, or massacre as some contemporary accounts called it. Dr. Strom researched the Ocoee Riot and the subsequent lynching of July Perry, which all started on Election Day 1920. Both July Perry and Mose Norman were specifically targeted, while the entire black population of Ocoee eventually became embroiled in an evening of racial violence. Dr. Strom tells us what role economic factors played in the riot. I think one of the things, one of the patterns that uh, my student Carly Hoffman and I identified was that in 1920, blacks in Okoe, or at least a, a significant number of blacks in Okoe, were doing fairly well economically. And obviously in the Jim Crow South, this was not something that was looked upon favorably by the white community. Blacks, especially the two in question, were leading labor gangs uh, in the orange groves. They owned their own property, including an orange grove. Uh, One of them had a car. They owned their own homes. So this was perhaps 
getting above their station. And I think the other thing, uh, too, is at this time, although we associate the depression with the 30s, certainly rural communities in America were slipping into depression as early as the 20s, as early as 1920. So you can imagine a white community that's, you know, probably a little economically unstable, very concerned about uh, where the economy is going, and then confronted with African Americans who are prosperous. So I think there was there was definitely this economic edge in the community. In 1998, an Orange County group known as Democracy Forum held a meeting and discussed the history of Ocoee. This was part of a public conversation about whether the event in Ocoee amounted to a riot or a massacre. Contemporary accounts used both words, but scholars and local residents believed these words had different meanings and transmitted very different things about the past. Although collective memory is frequently open to questions and interpretations, as well as rooted in the present as much as the past, some of the specific facts of Okoe are still shrouded in mystery. Dr. Strom explains the problems she encountered examining records from the time. Well, I think there are a couple of challenges in detailing any kind of race riot that took place in the 20s, and there were a number, and the problems are similar in Okoe to other race riots. One is that it seems that uh, records were purposefully destroyed. So, for example, we have information that from the Orlando Sentinel that 78 African Americans were registered to vote in Ocoee. But when we went to the voter registration records from 1920, the ledgers only listed three people as registered to vote. This was found out pretty shortly after the riot. The NAACP sent someone down to investigate the riot and a guy named Walter White. And White surmised that someone had tampered with the election records. So we don't really know when the people Uh, the African-Americans claimed that they had registered to vote. We have no evidence if that was true or not because we don't have the records. Records tampering is not the only difficulty to understand fully what happened election night 1920 in Ocoee. Important details have been completely lost to history, as Dr. Strom described for us. Another of the, uh, the the problems that we face is determining casualty numbers. The numbers that are on record vary between three and 300, so it's a wide uh, variance. Part of that is that officials at the time, authorities at the time, didn't investigate, or if they did investigate, didn't write anything down. Uh, all of the African Americans in Ocoee left and didn't want their names associated with Ocoee after this because of the possibility of retribution. So there was no uh, discussion from them until years later, I mean, half a century later, when this was investigated uh, more thoroughly. You know, bodies were never found. The white account at the time was that there were three victims. Walter White from the NAACP recorded about 30 that he could document uh, that were killed. Subsequent numbers from the African Americans are much higher. So it's very difficult to actually piece together the whole story when you're dealing with something that was so problematic at the time and remained problematic in the years following the event. In 2010, Dr. Paul Ortiz from the University of Florida 
was the keynote speaker at the Okoe Martin Luther King Day celebration. Upon reflection of that experience, Dr. Ortiz wrote that he believed the stories of the riot were still incomplete. Although the history of what happened to the black residents of Okoe were hushed throughout the 20th century, he was happy to see the city finally come to terms with the past. We may never learn all the specific details about the Okoe riot, but that shouldn't keep us from exploring its lessons and the lessons of difficult histories that are the patchwork of our shared past. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our Florida Frontiers blog. To get our daily posts today in Florida history, just like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.